0: It seemed like this horroring story of missing mother Michelle Warner was coming to a close. Mark Castellano had confessed to us that he had murdered Michelle all while he sat inside a Houston police station ready to lead investigators to his ex-girlfriend's body. So that was it, it seemed. He had confessed in graphic detail how they fought and he had choked her watching her take her last breath. Once dead, her face was frozen in a grimace that disturbed him, so he covered her head with a trash bag. But there was more to come. He had wanted ending her life. Now he would try to win in the court of law. You're about to hear about Mark's trial for the murder of Michelle and astonishing new details he would divulge from behind bars. You're listening to the final episode of Twisted Love, Bringing a Murderer to Justice. Mystery and Murder, analysis by Dr. Phil. I am Dr. Phil.
1: The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multilayered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth. But when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street. Essential television.
0: This case had been a whirlwind. Within eight days of Michelle's disappearance, he had met with me for an on camera interview and then calmly confessed. Now, Mark had to lead law enforcement to her body, which he had admitted to dumping and haphazardly burying in an oil field just outside of Odessa. Remember, that kind of land in West Texas stretches out for miles and miles, it seems endless. Police gave Mark a map on which he circled the general vicinity of where to find her corpse. This wasn't precise. All they had to go off of was Mark's word. Police and FBI agents actually had to call Mark on FaceTime while they were out in the oil field. From the Houston interrogation room he was being held in, Mark calmly directed them to scrub brush. Sure enough, her body was there. Then Mark was finally arrested and officially charged with murder. Police said at the time that had he not confessed, they most likely still would have been looking for Michelle unless someone else had just discovered her. As highly suspicious as he seemed, Mark had in fact almost gotten away with it. Mark and Michelle's son, Caden, had now left Odessa and was living with Michelle's family. It was time for Michelle's family to grieve her loss and see her get justice once and for all. In May of 2014, the trial began. Now, Mark had the choice he could plead guilty, he had already confessed. But instead, he decided to plead not guilty and to put both Michelle's family and his through a trial. And his lawyer, well, he had a hell of a defense. In his opening statement, Mark's lawyer, Eric Davis, contended that on that fateful night Michelle died, that Mark had in fact grabbed her and killed her, but not on purpose. He had killed her only because Michelle had hit him, Davis claimed. After her tragic death, Davis said Mark does some stupid stuff. He's referring to Mark burying Michelle's body and lying for days. Now, quote, does some stupid stuff. That's got to be the understatement of the century. Here's the scenario Mark's attorney told jurors. And this is a quote from the trial record. She comes at him. He grabs her. He's controlling her. And he falls down with his weight on hers. And here's a pop. When he reached out to defend himself, to protect himself, he didn't anticipate that she would fall down and break her neck. Now, clearly, this lawyer had a very steep hill to climb because you've got a client here that had confessed to killing Michelle. I mean, he had just said, yes, I did it, and he even talked about how he did it. And he did this without the benefit of counsel. So the counsel inherits the confession. Had the counsel been there to begin with, I'm sure Mark Castellano would never have said the things he said to me, would never have said the things that he said to the Houston police, would never have led them to the body. So, you inherit the fact pattern. You inherit the circumstances. Both the prosecutor and the defense have the same basic facts, but they use them to spin a different story. So, here the prosecution is saying he just overpowered her and murdered her. But the defense is saying, no, no, no. They're saying Michelle came at Mark and he was defending himself. He's admitting that, yes, it was at his hand that she died, but he had to do it. He didn't mean to do it. It just happened. He had no intention of killing her. It was not premeditated. And if you don't have intent and you don't have premeditation, then you don't have first degree murder. So he's trying to gain sympathy from the judge and the jury by saying she was the violent one. He was the victim. She attacked him, and but for her attack on him, this wouldn't have happened. So, the first link in the chain, according to the lawyer Davis, is her attacking him. And then, what you do is you find experts who can support your version of the facts. Another good example of this I interviewed Michael Peterson on Dr. Phil. He was the accused staircase killer who allegedly murdered his wife, Kathleen, by beating her and then staging it to look like she fell down the stairs. And during the trial, Peterson's defense hired forensic expert Henry Lee, who testified that the blood splatter present at the crime scene could have been due to the fall. Now, why is that important? Because you're looking for reasonable doubt. You're looking for them to say, well, it could have happened the way the defense is saying. So what Eric Davis is looking for in the case is not to convince someone that it happened a certain way, but to create enough doubt that it could have happened that way. Because as I said earlier, the standard for depriving someone of their freedom, the standard for depriving someone of their life is and should be very high. In this case, the defense did get an expert witness who supported this new story that Mark and his attorney had crafted. It was a forensic engineer who stated that, and I quote, there's no physical evidence that shows any type of squeezing or sideways forces. All the physical evidence shows is forces applied from the front. Now, of course, to me, and I think to most logical people, this defense doesn't make much sense. But he's saying she came at him, he grabbed her around the neck, and she fell, and he fell on top of her, and that snapped her neck. It was an accident. Now, most importantly, his story didn't make sense to the Harris County medical examiner. Testifying for the prosecution, the assistant medical examiner said Michelle died from strangulation. There were two fractures on her airway as well as bruising on the skin. This happens when constriction causes blood vessels to rupture. Someone has to be squeezing so hard that they pop those blood vessels and it creates bruising. That's chilling. It takes a lot of force and time for that to happen. It's violent And it's violent in the most intimate way because you have to be right up in the victim's face. You have to be so close that you can see them, you can smell them, you can feel them. It's very close. It's very personal. Fractures to someone's airway and ruptured blood vessels are not typically seen as the result of a fall. The medical examiner stated that Michelle's fatal injuries were consistent with someone applying pressure from the front of the neck. A fall would not have completely obstructed her airway. It's important to honor these types of facts because they are what tell the real story. Another interesting element of the trial was someone who testified against Mark. A former co-worker of Mark's testified that Mark had told him that he wanted to kill Michelle, take custody of their son, and take the child to Odessa to live with Mark and his parents. Naturally, Mark and his defense team had not wanted this man to testify. Why? Well, this changes everything. For how long had he possibly wanted her gone? Even if he hadn't planned on killing her that night... If we are to believe this, the plan had been set in motion in his mind. Does that equal premeditation? He certainly was thinking about it ahead of time. This seemingly harmless IT guy, was he really a cobra just waiting for his chance to strike? Waiting for the straw that would break the camel's back and give him the courage, the justification... To do this horrible deed? Reviewing the facts and hearing from others at least presents a reliable picture of what seems to have actually happened. Mark continued to tell so many different versions of what transpired, it could make your head spin. I contributed to 48 hours' coverage of this case, recounting my interview with Mark and my impression of him at the time we met. During this special, CBS correspondent Tracy Smith met with Mark behind bars. Clad in an orange jumpsuit and his signature black glasses, he still looked like your average Joe. Not what you would think about as a cold-blooded killer that you would spot in a crowd that would send chills down your spine. But this time our average-looking Joe, our IT specialist, our mild-mannered victim of a bad accident, well, he had a new story to tell. So I want to go back to this confession. What actually
1: happened that night? I didn't choke her. And I will say this about what happened. I was not on her a minute and a half or two minutes. It happened a lot quicker, like I said it did and one thing I have y'all show her a lot and her family but y'all show my kid a spitting image of me and if I have to die I would gladly accept the way she died because it was quick it was very quick
0: now this is a very different account of what he confessed to both to my team and to investigators initially. To compare, this is what he told us happened.
1: You know, we were fighting, and I, you know, she's swinging at me, and I grabbed her, you know, next snapped and I fell on the bed choking her, and next thing I know, it was over
0: with. So, his then story to us was he fell on the bed choking her. Then he tells CBS reporter Tracy Smith he didn't. Quote, didn't choke her. So which is it? Did he choke her or didn't he choke her? Of course, claiming that he didn't choke her at all and that this was some kind of freak accident fits in with his defense story of the unfortunate, innocent, every man who accidentally killed someone while he was just trying to protect himself story. In my opinion, it's just flat out more lies. I don't know that anything honest can come out of this man's mouth. He waffles between claiming this was accidental and in the next breath, seeming to claim that this was a justifiable homicide because she attacked him. So what is it? Did he fall on top of her on the bed and choke her? Did he just fall on her and her neck accidentally snapped? Or was he defending himself and had to get her under control, and before he knew it, she was dead? Remember, he had also previously said that he was sparing her from this bad road she was going down of drug abuse, and that she was going to die regardless. So really, he was doing her a favor. And he had told us that he was confessing because he just couldn't stand the idea of lying any longer. He didn't like the fact that he had lied to me, let alone Michelle's family and the authorities, but it seemed that that feeling was fleeting. And when it came down to saving himself, well, he started lying again. He then revised the story about why he decided to come clean. Remember, he said he came clean because he just couldn't stand a lie anymore. Here's what he said now.
1: And I sat there and I thought about it. And I was like, well, Caden's happy now. He's at home. Caden's very much at home now. He's just wonderful. And then when he asked me to tell the truth, and I realized Caden was okay, I didn't have a reason to lie anymore. Because what I set to do was done, and it was time to clear my conscience.
0: It's interesting to note here that he now says that he was lying for his son, That as soon as he saw his son was all right, he was free to confess and get the truth off his chest. That in some way, his lying was a noble gesture. When I talked to Mark, I not only felt like he was hiding the truth, but that he was harboring some serious issues regarding rage and an inferiority complex. I discussed this with Tracy Smith during our sit-down for 48 hours. Well, he talked about himself, he talked about his experiences. The only time he would reference her was in terms of how she impacted him. He's very narcissistic. By that, I mean he sees things from his point of view. And one of the things that I've always done from a forensics standpoint in questioning suspects is to say, to try and trivialize what happened, try to give them a face-saving way out. I said, nobody ever gets away with this. That this is the first time that I see he's decided maybe he's not the smartest guy in the world. Maybe he's not gonna get away with this. Well, here's the thing. If you look at him throughout this, look at throughout my entire interview, Through your entire interview, through the police tapes, there's no empathy. There's no compassion. That was a moment of rage. I just, I couldn't take it anymore. There's no sympathy. There's no emotion. There's only theater.
1: It was, you know, not my finest hour, but...
0: He's on. He's on. And this is his 15 minutes. I mean, he's loving it. Did you ever see him cry a tear for Caden? Did you ever see him cry a tear for Michelle? This is a woman that he shared his life with that he left in a field. People cry when their goldfish die. And this man murders the mother of his child, never sheds a tear, never so much as takes a moment to reflect. It's just all, Me, 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 me. Mark was interviewed by many people about her disappearance and then about the details surrounding Michelle's murder. First he spoke to me and to the police, then the 48 hours, and through it all, this man doesn't shed a tear. Not one. There's footage of him in the interrogation room, on the phone, talking about the murder, and he's having bites of a sub sandwich, like it's just another day at lunchtime. What he's done isn't impacting his appetite, and he's not beside himself. It's done, and he's just going on about his business. Something that still resonates with me is how resentful he seemed to be about Michelle, even when he was praising her, saying that she was beautiful, that she lit up a room, He seemed to admit this begrudgingly, with disdain. Anytime he talked about her, even when everyone was concerned about where she was, about what might have happened to her, he always had to derogate her. He always had to undermine her, criticize her, put her down. He couldn't just answer the questions, he had to always frame them in some way that put her in a negative light. He couldn't just answer factually, he had to frame her negatively. You know, people often ask me, when a crime is committed, when somebody does something that's horrific, they'll say, Dr. Phil, who does this kind of thing? And sometimes that's a rhetorical question, but oftentimes when it's asked of me, It's not rhetorical. They really want to know, psychologically speaking, who, what kind of person, what kind of personality does this kind of thing. And they want to know because they're unsettled. They want to know because how do they spot this kind of person in their own life? How do they protect themselves, their children, from these kind of people? What are the red flags? The truth is, we can explain it post hoc, We can explain it after the fact. We can say, well, look at his personality, and you can see what kind of person he is, and that makes sense that he would be vulnerable to doing something like this. But we can't predict it based on those same factors, because there are thousands and thousands, millions of people with the same kind of personality that don't do this sort of thing. Clearly, Mark had an inferiority complex, And he had coupled up with someone that, from a social status standpoint, was way above his station. He was a bit of a nerd. He was not someone that would be considered a GQ-type guy. He wouldn't walk in a room and turn women's heads. Not that that's how one should measure the worth of a man. I'm just saying in terms of social currency. That was not one of his attributes. It was one of hers. He didn't have a magnetic personality that would engage people, cause people to seek him out, come around him, spend time with him. It was her personality. Mark was the guy in the background while Michelle was often the center of attention because she was beautiful, engaging, cheerful. They just weren't a good match. She didn't think of him as her soulmate. She didn't want to be with him. He felt like he was at her beck and call. She wore the pants in the family because she had the power. I really did feel like there was this sense of him getting to finally be in the spotlight after waiting in the wings, always being in the shadow. Now she wasn't the center of attention. Now she wasn't the pretty one in the room. Now she wasn't the one everybody was looking at. It was him. Even though his magnet was negative, it was evil, it was sinister. But he sure had everybody's attention now, didn't he? At first, being with her might have helped his ego. I mean, come on. He's got the it girl. A charismatic, attractive woman wanted him. But soon, that fell by the wayside, and he felt even more inferior. Because at first, he might have been saying, wow, arm candy. People are going to envy me. But pretty soon, he got to feeling like they're all looking at her and wondering, why is she with him? And then he starts resenting her because by comparison, he looks even worse in his own eyes. By the end, it wasn't a romantic relationship. She wasn't scared to yell at him if she didn't like something he was doing. She pecked at his inner child. She made him feel small. She came back saying, This is purely financial. I just need a roof. We have a child together, so let's just be roommates. I don't want to be with you. I'm just bringing your son back here so you can spend some time and I can save some money. And even though he seemed mousy, at first blush, you could see how he'd end up in a relationship with a strong woman who would take control. But what was seething just under the surface? He's not very expressive. He's not very eloquent. And people turn to physicality. People turn to violence when they run out of socially acceptable ways to express themselves. There was a lot of resentment here, a lot of rage building up inside him. What ultimately made him snap that night, we will never know. But rejection stings. And he was being rejected by her every single day. So close, but so far. He could see her, feel her, want her, but not have her. Because she was there, but she wasn't. This is a man without good social skills. And he clearly is not a ladies' man. He clearly doesn't have good interpersonal skills in relationships with women. Women don't see his value. They don't appreciate him because of what I said before. The superficial things that initially draw attention, like good looks, tall, dark, handsome, interesting, funny, outgoing, gregarious, those are all things that he was not flush with. Now, is that what should attract someone to another person? of course not. Those things are shallow. I'm not telling you how things should be. I'm telling you how they are. And he's the kind of person that would resent someone that had all of those things and resent someone that was attracted to those things. Nice guys finish last. He would be the one that would think, hey, listen, you're looking past me when I'm the one with the brains. I'm the one that can provide for you. I'm the one with the depth. And you want the pretty boy? Are you kidding me? It just builds up resentment. Look at how he carelessly discarded Michelle. Once she was dead, he didn't like how her face was frozen, so he stowed her away in the closet until he could dump her body. She didn't play by his rules, so she's tossed away like roadkill in an oil field. He didn't have to look at her anymore. You know, oftentimes when a murder is investigated, you can get clues as to who did it by how they treat the dead body. If it's someone that had compassion for that person, you'll see that they often cover the body. They often position them in a respectful way. They're often careful how they lay them in even a shallow grave they treat them with dignity and respect. And when you see that, you know that it's someone that had compassionate feelings for them. If they're just thrown out helter-skelter in public or discarded like trash, then you know it's someone that had a disdain for them or no feelings for them whatsoever. In this case, there certainly wasn't much ceremony, was there? He, of course, stands by his delusional narrative that he was helping his son. But what kind of example is that setting, that when a woman is out of line, you get to kill her? It's preposterous. In my initial sit-down with him, I said, listen, if you have done this, you can give a gift to your son right now. Don't put him through this. Take him out of the spotlight. Take him out of all of this stress and this tension. Admit to this now so there can be an orderly transition of your son to extended family. Don't leave everything in limbo. Don't create this horrible record that he will read the rest of his life. Do the right thing now. Make for the orderly transition of your son. His delusional narrative that he was helping his son runs absolutely counter to what I had said to him at the time. There is definitely an air of duping delight with Mark Castellano. He has a certain arrogance about him that in the final analysis, she wasn't in power. He was. He won. He killed her. He's there. She's not. I win, you lose. The sense of calm that he had about him was because this was over and he's still standing. Listen to him behind bars and how he shares more of his opinion about women with Tracy Smith.
1: I mean, women are now, y'all are replacing men in a lot of aspects. Y'all are becoming big-time aggressors. Women are now the new aggressors she's beautiful and you're a beautiful woman yourself life's a little easier for for women like you because people just can't put bad things with pretty people it sounds like you resent that a little bit mark well when you sit there and have been told that when you're not a pretty person that you know life's gonna suck for
0: you obviously he feels cheated because he's not a handsome man. As I said before, he feels less than, but he's the one who put that on other women. All of his insecurities of not being good looking enough or cool enough or likable enough, those feelings of low self-esteem and unworthiness, they bottled up within him and made him spiteful. He assumes that life is easier for women if they're attractive. Anyone who really knew Michelle, especially her family, could tell you that her life was anything but easy. She had fought through hardships. She was finally on the right path. Finally. But this had not been a success-only journey for her. She had been through drug addiction, poverty. She was on the brink, just on the brink of coming out the other side. Having overcome obstacles, she was claiming her place in the sun. What she couldn't ultimately overcome was Mark Castellano and all of his resentment and anger and bitterness. It also seems like he's making yet another bid for sympathy with this whole I wasn't pretty, so my life was hard bit. He was with this dazzling woman that he couldn't hold a candle to, so he pitied himself. He felt sorry for himself and expected everyone else to as well. Quote, women are now the new aggressors, Mark claims. That sums up how he views the opposite sex. He's afraid. They're the aggressors. Boil that back down to that night. He's defending himself. She's the aggressor. She's the attacker. He's the victim. You ask who does this kind of thing? Someone who distorts the transactions of life in that way. Is that why he murdered her? He sees himself entirely as the victim. When it comes to both Michelle's killing and the police investigation, take a listen.
1: I gotta say, I really screwed myself over the way I confessed everything because first of all, I didn't really describe everything accurately. And second of all, I didn't really think I was going every word I was gonna say was gonna be used completely out of
0: context, which it was in a lot of ways. He's criticizing the process. Things were taken out of context. Well, here's the context. Did you kill her or did you not? He felt very much that he had reached above his level with Michelle. And that she was out of his league. So out to speak. of his league. She was way over his head. In this instance, she did not reject him. He had the ultimate rejection of her. So going back to the trial, it is noteworthy that while he had no problem singing like a canary to me, and then the forty-eight hours, he chose not to take the stand. He had good counsel, because doing so would have done nothing for him. Trust me. When you get in this situation, the defense attorney has to weigh the pros and cons, and in most cases, it's not beneficial. He has already confessed, and he has spoken on the record. He's spoken to me. He's spoken to 48 Hours. You've heard him on the record, and he is leaking oil. Every time he opens his mouth, he just can't pump the brake. He can't access his edit button because he doesn't recognize that what he's saying is to his detriment because he is so narcissistic he sees it only from his point of view and he can't read the room. Narcissists don't read the room. They see things only from their point of view and they don't realize this is not selling. I'm telling this tale of woe about how I'm the victim And they don't recognize this is not selling. People are not buying this. So, unless you're someone who can really connect with the jury, unless you're someone who can really get them to relate to your point of view, taking the stand can be a recipe for disaster. And if you have a narcissistic personality and you don't read the jury, you just tell your story because it sounds good to you you can destroy yourself on the witness stand in a matter of minutes. So think about Mark in this instance and the story he's telling. He's not likable. He's not well-spoken. He makes no effort to hide the negative feelings he has for Michelle because, as I said, every time he talks about her, he has to put her down. It is never becoming to speak ill of the dead, and he cannot keep from it. He has to speak ill of the woman that has died at his hand. He has to speak ill of the mother of his child. He doesn't know how to show empathy. So you put him on the stand, he's going to badmouth her. He's not going to shed a tear. He's going to make himself out to be the victim, not the monster. But that just doesn't fit the facts. He put a bag over her head, hit her in the closet, dumped her in the car, drove her out into the prairie, and discarded her in a shallow grave. It's a little hard to play the victim. And just think about the cross-examination the prosecution would subject him to, the inconsistencies in his stories. One time, I just fell on her and, oops, her neck snapped. One time, well, I actually choked her. Well, one time I was defending myself change after change after change. And then his actions after the murder, hiding the body, lying to law enforcement, he would just come across as a complete pathological liar. You know, the defense attorney obviously is going to go through this with him time and time again, because they know the hard-hitting questions are going to come. But as I say, Mark just doesn't have the ability to pump the brake. He doesn't have the ability to recognize what the jury needs to hear to connect with him. In this case, the jury was instructed by the state to consider whether he was guilty of murder, guilty of manslaughter, or not guilty, including by reason of self-defense. And yet, there was another surprise element in this case still to come. After he was found guilty there was a punishment phase of the trial. Jurors had to consider whether Mark was under the immediate influence of sudden passion arising from adequate cause. Now, you've all heard just in lay terms and on TV and in movies about crimes of passion. Now, This can be raised by a defendant during the punishment phase of a trial. It asked the jury to take into consideration if the defendant was in a situation of such fear or rage that they were just unable to conduct themselves normally. They were just unable to inhibit their behavior. Now, as someone trained in forensic psychology, I often had to deal with making a distinction about the difference between the irresistible impulse and the impulse not resisted. Now, think about that. The irresistible impulse versus the impulse not resisted. The irresistible impulse is that crime of passion. It is the impulse that is so powerful, so overwhelming, so innate that you just cannot resist it versus an impulse that occurs to you and you make a choice whether to resist it or not. You have the choice. You could resist it, you just choose not to. And that's what this jury was asked to deal with. The age-old example of this is, let's say a wife comes home, finds her husband in the arms of another woman. They're both naked, they're in the throes of passion in bed and in a moment of passion she grabs a gun that's just there, it's just handy it's on the nightstand or it's on the counter that they keep for security at night and she just picks it up and just blasts away and shoots them both. If the jury believes that this woman did not plot the murder and was just in blind rage and acted in a momentary spell brought on by extraordinary circumstances just in a blackout rage then they can significantly reduce the sentence again this is not a murder defense otherwise think about it anyone could commit a murder and just say they did it in a sudden passion you just can't kill people because they've wronged you and just threw you into a rage Most people that commit murder are angry when they do it. That would make it like the Wild West out there. If people felt wronged or heated, they would think it was okay to take matters into their own hands. Well, the jury didn't buy that. They rejected his claim of sudden passion. But during sentencing, there was still another surprise to come. While he could have gotten up to a life sentence, the jury ultimately gave him 27 years. Now, this means that after just 13 and a half years, he could theoretically be eligible for parole. That could mean theoretically that at 51 years of age, he could walk out of that prison and make a life for himself as a still relatively young man. That is something that Michelle obviously will not have the chance to do. She doesn't get to be dead for 13 and a half years and then hit the reset button and start over. She is gone forever. If 27 years sounds like an odd choice of years to be sentenced, you would be right. One of the state's prosecutors at the time reasoned that when jurors have two opposing views, they usually come together and reach a compromise. Mark actually mouthed the words, thank you, to the jury upon receiving his sentencing. He actually looked at these people as though they were in this together, and mouthed the words "Thank you." It turned my stomach. Of course, the sentence was disappointing to Michelle's family, the possibility of him getting set free ever, let alone in thirteen and a half years was horrifying. After only a little more than a decade behind bars, after everything this family has been through, your heart can't help but go out to them. This child will be in his teens still. But Mark wasn't through. In 2015, he appealed verdict. Thankfully for the family, the appeal was denied, and his judgment of 27 years stands. So, what's left? The shining light of this very dark story is that Michelle lives on in her daughter Haley and her son Caden. Caden will have to grow up knowing that his father took his mother's life, but he will also know the woman that she really was from those who loved her. The day of the sentencing? Well, it happened to be Michelle's birthday. She would have turned 33 years old. So young, so vibrant, so optimistic about the rest of her life. No one wins here, not Mark, not Caden, certainly not Michelle, certainly not her family. The void will always be felt by Michelle's family, by the friends whose lives she touched. As for me and my team at Dr. Phil, we were happy to play a small part in helping to find justice for this woman who deserved so much more. Her family, her children remain in our hearts and prayers. You've been listening to Twisted Love. Bringing a Murderer to Justice, Mystery and Murder, Analysis by Dr. Phil. I'm Dr. Phil. Thanks for sharing this time.